Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen, which is a bar in Florida, as well as a podcast that is one half based in Florida. Before we get to that, Charles, which I think will be uh, maybe the most of our most of our subject today, there is something a completely side issue that I wanted to talk to you about. It's, I mean, it's almost the weekend since we're doing this on Friday, and that is the subject of cars, which I know that you like very much, and uh, I do too. Somewhere. I'm sure that there is some feminist scholar who has written a whole dissertation or book on the fact that there are certain cars that are considered women's cars or, or chick cars, as they used to call them in the 80s. Like the Camaro Berlinetta was one of those, uh, Volkswagen Beetle, especially the new Beetle. And uh, for reasons that don't bear discussing, I am today driving around in a Mini Cooper convertible. Uh, which is pretty much the definitive uh, ladies' car, although it is the kind of souped-up version. They are just tremendously fun to drive, though. I, uh, I'm glad they exist. I don't think I would want this to be my my all-time daily driver. Uh, there's not enough room in the back to to throw things into when you have uh, supplies and such things, but it is tremendously fun. And I was thinking of some other cars like that. As I mentioned one time, I'm sure I've told the story on the podcast before, I once had a, uh, a Lamborghini convertible uh, Gallardo for the weekend. Uh, tremendously fun car to drive. Don't want one. Absolutely impractical, terrifying to park and run over speed bumps and stuff because every time you uh, hit a speed bump going 15 miles an hour, it's $20,000 in damage to the car. And I think replacing the brakes when like brake services do is like $10,000 or something. It's, uh, it's absurd. A lot of fun. Glad it exists. Don't want one. Another one that jumps to mind is um, I'm not a huge fan of Ford Mustangs, particularly the six-cylinder, you know, underpowered Seb Gorka uh, Mustang. But the crazy, like, thousand-horsepower uh, Shelby Cobra, the current top-of-the-line Mustangs, are just enormously fun. They're dumb. They're pointless. There's no need for it. I don't want one, but I'm glad they exist. And no one's ever convinced me that they aren't awesome. Yeah, so there are cars that are feminine to start with. I agree, and then there are why? Cars... What makes the car a, a feminine car? Is it just that it's cute? Yeah, yeah, I think so. But I also think that, of course, this isn't true across the board, which is why you get those feminist analyses. But I also think there are some cars that appeal to men, or at least a majority of men and some cars that appeal to women or at least a majority of women. And yes, of course, whenever you say that people say, well, actually my wife likes this car. I'm sure. Right. But she got a Ford F three fifty diesel. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but that car, for example, a Ford F three fifty diesel would leave my wife completely cold. She just wouldn't want one. She would think yeah. that was a masculine car and she'd be right. Uh, yeah, I think when it comes to, um, you know, proper sports cars, um, particularly the mid-engine ones, I, I wouldn't want an Italian one. I think I'd have to go with something German, you know, Porsche or the, what is it, the Audi R8. It's their uh, mid-engine car, something like that. Just barely practical and usable enough to, uh, to justify owning, although currently I'm not in the market for any such thing. I don't really, um, I'm not one of these guys who lusts after cars or obsesses after cars. I like them and all. I'm uh, perfectly happy with my Jeep. Uh, if I had a half a million dollars to spend on something, it wouldn't be on a uh, on a ridiculous car. But um, 
but they are kind of uh, kind of enjoyable on that front. What was I thinking about on that? Oh, what I do look at is real estate. Uh, that's that's definitely the sign that you're getting old. Is that uh, I, I spend a lot of time looking at real estate listings more than I do at uh, at cars and such things. Well, I was about to say that I don't because I am happy with my house, but I have not been especially happy with my house this week, Kevin. Albeit, <laughs> I know you you got hit by lightning, right, and all your stuff stopped working. Well, I do. You want to hear about my week? I do, but first, there's you know there's a profoundly sort of conservative point in there that I want to make before you get started. Which is that, um, and and I, this is definitely a part of my my sensibility. I don't like gadgets and stuff, like anything that overcomplicates things. I, it just it bugs me, and I don't want it. And um, so I live in a hundred year old house, and uh, you know, in Texas where we live, there's all sorts of bad weather from time to time. And because our cities are incompetently governed, like cities everywhere else, our power goes out a lot. But our house, which has nothing complicated about it because it was built a million years ago, just weathers everything just fine. Uh, sometimes a little rain comes through the ceiling and whatnot, but um, but it gets through it. Whereas you, with your smart house, I'm sure 99% of the time it's very convenient. But when lightning hits your house and jumps up through the was it the coaxial cables that That's it came correct. in through? Uh, because you've got everything else, I assume, buffered or whatever the word is. Um, anyway, so I don't want to jump on your story. No, and you are right in your implication, which is that the loss of even the internet in my house is a huge problem. I, yeah. You know when the power goes out? Which is why we're doing this podcast on Friday, incidentally. Yeah. You know when the power goes out and you're so used to light switches working that you just mindlessly turn the light switch on in the anticipation that it will work? Yeah. Even though you know there's a power cut and you're conscious of it. And it's like getting punched when it doesn't. Yeah, well, everything it's like it's, it's shocking. Yeah. in my house works like this. I mean, it, it, it's the garage doors, for example, open from my phone. And, but they don't if you're outside of the house, outside of the range of the Wi-Fi, and you hit the button, and the internet's out because there's nothing to convey it. Anyway, I, Kevin, have had uh, a very interesting week. I'm going to tell you about it, and everyone else about it, as a form of catharsis. Last week, we did the podcast from... Or I did from Nevada, right? And by that point, we had had a lightning strike very close to the house that created an over voltage surge, came up through the coaxial cable, which is grounded correctly, uh, and destroyed my modem. Also, now, to clarify, you guys didn't just have a lightning strike; you guys had some sort of weird biblical electrical storm. Yeah. So my wife was saying that during this storm, her phone was going crazy with those alerts you get from the government. Yeah, And in the space of about five minutes, she had a lightning warning, a hurricane warning, and a tornado warning. So something <laughs> happened. But the modem blew. Now, I've never had that happen. The line is grounded, but it has happened to a friend of mine. It's happened to my parents-in-law. So I, I, I was relatively sanguine about this. For the first time in five years, we lost a modem to this. Okay, So I ordered a new one from afar. And I talked my wife through on FaceTime to installing the new one. I got back. I replaced a bunch of stuff because it wasn't just the modem. It then traveled up the Ethernet line into the patch bay, took out some other stuff. Uh, Sunday, I fixed this. Monday, I'm writing my magazine piece. I'm already behind. I have a million things to do. And I thought, well, I'll keep writing my magazine piece in front of the soccer. We don't have cable. We have TV through the Internet. 
in rolls a storm. I mean, almost the same sort of storm as I'd missed the previous week when I was away. And we're getting another biblical thunderstorm with lightning and rain. And the game cuts out. Okay, so I go to my office where the modem is. And would you believe it? Would you believe it that four days after the first one was fried by a lightning storm, so was another one? (laughs) Nice. So I lost that. Then, then, the next morning, we had our uh, semi-annual inspection of the air conditioning unit. It's pretty important, Florida. Yes. And the guy said, you know, you've got two coils in two of your units. We have three that are on the blink and they're going to have to be replaced. So he quotes me for this. And, you know, when I've thought about how I'm going to most efficiently sell my body, I thought, well, (laughs) maybe these units should be replaced. They are old. They're at the end of their life. I don't really want to sink too much money in. So uh, I agree to do this and actually add the third one in, which is 14 years old and is on the edge too so that was a a small fortune going out the door and uh they installed them great lovely job all working more efficient noticeably more efficient um and last night uh the modem came second one (laughs) in a week i install it and i think we're just back we're just we're back to normal in this house and i go to clean my teeth my wife looks up at the wall in the bathroom and there's water running down it. Mm. And it turns out that a pipe is broken in the crawl space above our bedroom, which I went up and saw myself, took pictures of, was fixed this morning. But now both walls, both sides of the wall are dripping wet. There's an industrial scale humidifier in the bathroom. Uh, all the wallpaper on one side is gone. True. <laughs> True. <laughs> True. The, the the event that it's trying to mitigate was an industrial scale humidification event. And on the other side, the paint's uh, all bubbled. So it's been a week. It's been a week. <laughs> oh, that stinks. Just waiting for um, the earthquake. Yes. Well, you don't get a lot of this in Florida, do you? No, no. But who knows? There's always a first time for everything. So a little bit of construction trivia. Um, in Florida, they build... Uh, particularly on the coast, differently from the way they build in the rest of the country, apparently. So Florida has for a long time just got just made peace with the fact that things are going to flood. And so in a lot of places in coastal Florida, you know, the first floor is made out of cinder block and the wooden uh, framing doesn't start until the second floor, if there is a second floor. And this is true of a lot of houses, also true of you know, commercial properties and things like that. And it's kind of smart because that way, if you get a flood, you know, yeah, I mean, you lose your carpet and you got to paint and, and that kind of stuff, but it doesn't structurally destroy your building unless you've got, uh, you know, some sort of truly epic uh, flood that gets that gets above that. And I mentioned that because this is one of those things that nobody really talks about when we're talking about things like climate change. Um, but these kinds of adaptive strategies are things that we're going to have to look into adopting in places that are not Florida. Uh, places are going to get more floods than they used to likely we actually don't have any carpet in this house and that is one of the reasons why right but i mean it's like your hardwoods are going to live through a flood either you know no but the synthetic wood floors might yeah those do pretty well i guess 
Um, I mean, I'm not an expert on these things, but I think maybe they would. Although uh, a friend of mine likes to say in engineering, he says, you know, engineered wood is an insult to wood and engineering. True, but pretty good if it gets wet. Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. Uh, let's see. We've had Charlie's terrible week. We've had a little car talk. I suppose we should move on to, um, we're not really doing any politics today. It's kind of a silly personal story, but it's politics adjacent. So, um, you were the one who brought it to my attention. So I'll, I'll let you tell it. Well, I have been on something of a tear against this horrendous decision taken by president Biden to violate his oath of office and usurp Congress's power and steal Penn Wharton now says up to a billion, no, a trillion. You see, a lot of big numbers. Even I fall foul to it. Uh, a trillion dollars by forcing people who didn't go to college and take out big loans to pay for it and benefit from it Yeah. Uh, to pay for those who did. Can I ask a side question real quick before we move on? Yes. Because I joked about this in my little column I wrote about it. Is Oxford very expensive? Or is it just hard to get into or does it depend on who you are? No, I think it is. It's certainly hard to get into. Um, I mean, I assume if you're someone important, then it's easier to get into. Hmm. Uh, it isn't cheap, but it's not, or at least it wasn't when I went, expensive in the way that uh, American colleges are. Although it's hard to tell because there's subsidies and caps. Yeah, so that's what I was thinking. Like, you know, Princeton is really expensive on paper. But, you know, if you're poor, it doesn't cost you anything to go to school there. Even if you're in sort of a modest means, it doesn't really cost you very much to go to school there. Oh, it's the same for Oxford. And nobody graduates with student loans. Like, almost none of their students graduate with any student loans. And uh, the ones that do, it's it's typically a pretty small amount. Well, most people who go to Oxford have student loans. But, I mean, you're not talking in the... Tens of thousands. Yeah, yeah. Tens of thousands, not not more. I mean, the the... American students who go to Oxford pay through the nose for it. Naturally, that's why you guys pay less. Yes. It's cross-subsidized. <laughs> Love it. Anyhow, so anyway, you, you've been inveighing against this uh, rating of the FISC and this exercise in executive unilateralism. Yeah, so I won't re-rehearse every single argument, but I have essentially hit this from every angle because it offends me from every angle. This isn't just one of those cases in which the executive branch is usurping congressional power, although it is. This is, to me, uh, a a problem in every respect. It's terrible policy. It's terrible politics. It is uh, akin to class warfare. Uh, It is corrupt and so on and so forth. And I've hit this, and I've done so in no uncertain terms. And I started to notice yesterday that uh, among the responses uh, were this claim that I was a hypocrite. Uh, A hypocrite because I, along with you, apparently, (laughs) had taken out and had forgiven nearly a, a quarter of a million dollars worth of PPP. Well, they call them loans, but they were never really loans. They were... Uh, grants that were conditional upon being used in the way they were supposed to be used. Right. Um, the for, payroll protection plan for people who have forgotten. Under right. COVID, they were paying people to uh, not dismiss their employees when businesses were shut down because it was a more, I think, bureaucratically and administratively effective way 
to deal with that than trying to get the unemployment system to deal with it. Right. So we can, if we like, talk about why PPP is not equivalent to student loans. I, I had misgivings about the program. There was a lot of fraud. I, I yeah. Uh, but well, it was duly passed by Congress. That's uh, another big difference. At least. But the material point yeah. here, Kevin, is that Mad Dogs and Englishman Inc. of Tampa, Florida, which received $225,000 in PPP loans uh, that were forgiven, is not actually related to this podcast. It's not related to me. It's not related to you. This podcast is owned by National Review. Now, you may have noticed this, but with the exception of National Review promos that I'm told yeah. are put in in post-production... We don't have any commercials. We used to, but we don't have yeah. any. We haven't had any for a long, long, long time. And if we did have them, the proceeds would not go to me. They would not go to you. They would go to National Review. We do yeah. this podcast as part of our salary jobs. This is part of our responsibility. But and, our, our vast staff had to be paid during the shutdowns. Right. Uh, now, if you scroll down. Our vast staff um, zero. Right. If you scroll down on the page. Watch, I should back up a bit. Uh, alongside these accusations of hypocrisy were these screenshots, Mad Dogs and Englishman Inc., Tampa, Florida, the amounts. Uh, now, Mad Dogs and Englishman Inc. is not us. It is a, a restaurant in Tampa, Florida, which has a bar in it. I looked at this and I thought, well, this is actually the sort of restaurant I might own because it's <laughs> themed to the Beatles. <laughs> but I don't. I don't own it. And in fact, if the people who had looked this up in their haste had done any due diligence, which they, I don't think, wanted to do, of course not. they would have found that Mad Dogs and Englishman Inc. is a, uh, well, it's in Tampa where I don't live. Uh, it's a restaurant, which this podcast is not. It has 29 employees, which this podcast most certainly uh, does, does not. Um, they would also have found out that the Ben Shapiro that they thought they were owning with the screenshot yes. is not, in fact, a real estate agent <laughs> and how no longer lives in Los Angeles. How many Shapiros do you imagine there are in the United States? Two it's million? just amazing. It's, it's just amazing. Thing. They kept doing this. They would find whatever could pass us. The, um, so, yeah, all of yesterday, and you wrote about this today, all of yesterday, my inbox and my Twitter mentions and so on were full of people saying, this you, this you. This you? No, it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should go down to Mad Dogs. I think we, and should, we should definitely podcast in there. Yes. Yeah, and do a live show there and drink some of their beers and listen to the Beatles. But um, we have nothing so, to do with them, I'm afraid. So I mentioned in my column, uh, I love the idea of you and you and me owning a bar together. Right. I think that would be it would be hilarious. But we would of course be bankrupt because. Uh, I don't think you and I bring out the best in each other when it comes to uh, moderation and alcohol consumption. No, and if we had we access would, to it, ostensibly free. <laughs> yeah, our, our customers would be upset because there would be nothing to drink, and we would be broke because there would be nothing to drink. That's right. But, uh, yeah, Tampa. I like Tampa. So I always say about Tampa, and I want to hear why you like Tampa, but I always say about Tampa that um, – it is, in one sense, the best city to live in in America because it has uh, good restaurants. It has great entertainment, has three professional sports teams. It has beaches. It has Busch Gardens and Lego Land. It's one hour from Disney Universal SeaWorld. 
Uh, it has a really nice airport, much of which is new. Uh, it has good uh, schools. And uh, it is, or at least was until the last two years came along, affordable. Uh, Still I, pretty affordable. Yeah, it's just increased, I think, the average yeah. house price by a great deal. There's there's really not much wrong um, with Tampa. Now, of course, if you don't like the vibe there, then you, there's nothing I can do about that. But on paper, and in my personal experience, it's, it's great. Yeah, well, as I was saying earlier, you know, I look at real estate listings a lot, and I, I just think about various places I might live. And Tampa, you know, your dollar to beach ratio is pretty good. Yeah, like there, you know, a lot of places in the on the East Coast, um, or you know, on the Gulf, where if you are looking to get a house that's you know on the water, view of the water, is you know five, six, seven million dollars, something like that, and uh, which, in spite of the vast podcasting fortune uh that i have accruing in the bank is um is not really probably in the cards in the immediate future um in fact i was a friend of mine and i were talking about a particular place i'd seen that i liked and he said well you know you're only one book away from being able to afford it i said yes unfortunately that book is harry potter and the philosopher's (laughs) stone but um yeah, but Tampa, I mean, still pretty expensive to be on the water there, obviously, and uh, pretty big money by journalist uh, standards, but certainly more within the realm of the possible than, um, oh, you know, the parts of Miami you might want to be yeah. in, um, some other parts of Florida, uh, you know, parts of uh, other parts of the coastal south um, that I quite like. Um, you know, there's some... Uh, like Kiowa Island, places like that, I think, or Hilton Head are all pretty nice. And those are just wildly expensive compared to uh, compared to Tampa. And um, I went to a Republican convention in Tampa one time, and I have fond memories of it uh, from then. It was a fun time. I did not go to that. My wife, uh, who was not then my wife, did go to that. In yes. fact, I think she organized the National Review presence there. And, and she did. And she came back looking like she was of a different race. She was so tanned. I mean, she left looking approximately like me. Well, no one looks quite as pasty as me, let's be honest. And she came back looking, I mean, Cuban. She just, it was it was the most remarkable one week <laughs> sunshine transformation I've ever seen. It made me want to live in Florida, which I now do. Yeah, now you do. Well, isn't she, isn't she of Italian background? Yeah, exactly. And she like just yeah, tans. So. I mean, my goodness yeah. me. And both yeah. my kids are pasty white. And so sometimes in the middle of the summer when we go out, people look at us um, like, is she the nanny? Is, is she the bit on the side? How could she be related to these three? <laughs> Man, that's a, that is some dangerous territory walking into there rhetorically, Charles, i got to tell you. So I'm, not, I'm just going to... I was going to let that one slide. Um, no, you, you do get that a lot, though. I've heard this from a lot of you know mixed race couples of um, if the if the wife is the is non white of getting that you know she the nanny or you know how did this happen kind of thing, uh, including people I know who've been like married for you know forty years and clearly they're not either one of them you know out uh, starting a, a third marriage and family or something like that. Hmm. You know when you're walking around with your kids who are thirty five. It's a little different, I think, yeah, maybe, than walking yeah, around with your yeah. kids who are two and three. But um, another story I remember, just 
completely unrelated, but because people are rude and weird, there's a couple I knew who had just a bunch of kids. I wanted they had 12 or 14 kids or something like that. And, um, but they were very, um, well off. And so they, they traveled a lot and they traveled, you know, in a great deal of, of comfort and style. And, but everywhere they would go, you know, people would just lecture this woman on why do you have so many kids? Don't you know how to stop having babies? Don't you know where babies come from? Has no one ever talked to you about birth control? And, um, she just, you know, got really, really tired of it. People giving her this, you know, sort of unsolicited advice. And so apparently she just started answering people. Well, the thing is I like sex and <laughs> that seems to have, uh, have, uh, ended those, those conversations. Yeah. So, um, I wrote a little bit about this dumb episode and the question of hypocrisy because hypocrisy is everyone's favorite charge in politics. But weirdly, you don't actually get a whole lot of true, honest hypocrisy out there. You do from time to time. You sometimes get something that looks like inconsistency, but that's not quite the same thing. Or you get people who are taking benefits that are part of programs that they politically oppose, which I don't think is a problem at all. And I've, I've written and spoken about this a great deal that um, if I had it my way, there never would have been any such thing as social security. I think it's a bad idea. It's a bad program. It's um, it causes all sorts of misallocation of capital and it distorts people's savings behavior and yada, 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 all that sort of stuff. But if it's still around when I'm old enough to collect it, of course I'm going to take it. Um, you know, I'm a flat tax guy. I don't think there should be a mortgage interest deduction, uh, but there is one. So I take it. Um, I don't think the fact that you oppose a program puts you under any particular obligation to financially disadvantage yourself when you lose the political fight. And you see this, you know, often in the context of people who are uh, much more, you know, prominent and wealthy than we are, you know, if the Coke industries enjoys some subsidy that Coke doesn't support or you know elon musk is a sort of libertarian issue views but um benefited from various kinds of green subsidies over the years i don't really think of that as being hypocrisy at all um it's hypocrisy if you pretend that you don't you know if you went out and said well i'm the sort of person who would never have say taken a ppp loan and then it turns out you did yeah that's hypocrisy but saying i think this program is stupid but it exists and therefore i'm gonna you know benefit from it such as i can in my own life i don't see anything at all wrong with that yeah um you know as i mentioned in my piece i have in spite of the fact that i was you know an english major at, at one point in time I, i've ended up in the half of the population that pays federal income taxes and they seem to me excessive in many ways and um yeah you give me a chance to claw a little bit back of course i will well it, and not just claw a little bit back uh, which, which is always uh, which, which is always, you know, an interesting question morally, I suppose, because money is I don't fungible. Think it is. No, no, no. I was going. Yeah. I don't mean it like that. I mean because because money is fungible, so it's it's actually very difficult to work out what you're getting and what you're paying, and you know. Sure. Yeah. Um, of course, yeah. You know. So, for Back example, right. So, but what I was going to say is is um, it, it it has to work both ways in the sense that so let's suppose that. I had American student loans, which I don't because I didn't grow up in America or go to college in America. But let's suppose that I did. And let's suppose that I met the threshold requirements for this illegal transfer of debt. Uh, people might say, well, 
Charles, you profoundly oppose this. How can you take it? Right. Which is your point. Yeah. Um, now, I also um, uh, oppose paying a whole load of taxes. <laughs> but I do it. Yeah, so, so, you know, I probably wouldn't get an email saying, well, Charles, you are opposed to the between two and $6,000 this is going to cost each taxpayer, according to Penn Wharton. But I noticed so therefore, that, you're off well, I noticed that you paid those taxes. <laughs> That's very hypocritical, right? No one would say that. Now, and they would understand that I'm paying those taxes because I'm legally forced to pay those taxes, and I don't want to deal with the consequences of of not paying them. And so I think that if if you're not willing to say, well, Charles, you uh, and I am a, a taxpayer, and uh, I pay quite a lot of taxes um, now. Uh, if if I am not uh, if I am not somehow being hypocritical by refusing to pay the taxes with which I disagree, refusing to abide by the law when taxes go up or when the uh, spending for which those taxes uh, pays changes in nature, then I don't see why it would be hypocritical, for example, to write the mortgage interest deduction off my taxes. I'm against it. So I I also take it. Um, yeah. I, I'm against the mortgage interest deduction. I think it is bad policy. I think it is bad policy in that it uh, subsidizes people for choice. I think it is bad policy in that it is regressive and it all of the benefits really flow to the top. I think it is bad policy in that it... Uh, is in a good example of corruption in the tax system. And the, the reason it is in there is that the people who the government really wants to vote and write them checks and support them and talk about it have mortgages and that the mortgage you know, pressure groups, advocacy groups, as you always point out when you write about the NRA not really making it to the top, are, are extremely influential. Um, yeah. I also don't really know what choice I have in that, how am I supposed to, this is where I say it gets sort of morally difficult, even if you were of the view that you should uh, regard yourself as a hypocrite, how am I supposed to do the math? So let's suppose that I take this deduction and it cuts X amount off my taxes, but then I'm also angry that I have to pay the same amount in taxes for stuff that I don't agree with. All right. What am I supposed to do in that situation as a taxpayer other than calculate my taxes in exactly the way that the federal government has laid them out? Yeah. You know, I admire Henry David Thoreau and civil disobedience and going to jail because he didn't want to pay his tax to support the war. And uh, But you can't make that every issue in your life unless you want to live your entire life in jail uh, because you're mad about PPP or something like that. You can't subdivide you know, it either. This. Right, yeah. I was thinking about this, and of course, the more obvious claim of hypocrisy, um, and it's not really quite that either. You know, in my case, would be I never had any student loans because I went to a state university where my education was enormously subsidized um, by the state of Texas and uh, and the oil industry. Uh, God bless them. And um, you know, my out of pocket tuition was probably something on the order of twelve to fifteen percent of the cost of my education. Now, if I had it my way, we would probably structure that differently too and there would be you know a more of a direct relationship between the cost of your education and what you pay for it although maybe not 
entire privatization. But um, one of the things that draws to mind to me, for me, though, is that one of the things I hate about these phony loan programs and loan forgiveness is it's a sneaky way to spend money without having to account for it. You know, so if you lend people a whole bunch of money and you're the federal government, that doesn't go on your books as spending. That goes on your books as an asset. You know, I've got a trillion dollar asset because there are people who owe me a trillion dollars in loans. Whereas if you want to do what the state of Texas did when I was in school, which is just spend the money and pay for the kids' education, you've got to account for it. You've got to go to the voters and say, this is our budget. This is how we're spending this money. And uh, we're not, you know, engaged in some sort of accounting shenanigans whereby it looks like we're holding an asset on the books rather than doing what we're doing, which is spending money on things that we say we want to spend money on. So, you know, if, um, if the federal government, I think this would be a bad policy. So let me prefix this. Um, if they wanted to spend 10 times what they spend right now, directly subsidizing the cost of higher education, but they wanted to appropriate it, you know, go through the budget process and all that sort of stuff, be a vastly superior way of doing things than putting out these subsidized loans and then forgiving them on the backside and pretending like money wasn't spent because money was spent. I'm a little more sympathetic to um, university spending than a lot of conservatives are. I think we actually you know, get a pretty good bang for our buck on that and of the many things the federal government spends money on, particularly supporting basic research at the universities, I think is, is a pretty decently wise investment. But um, there's also, you know, the, the, the flip side of that, uh, who was it? Um, I was at the Babylon Bee had a headline that was, you know, Biden to forgive uh, $10,000 in student loans. Coincidentally, every university raises its tuition by $10,000 the next day. And, um, but that is true. You know, everyone knows this. We see this in the context, particularly of houses, right? So everyone who owns a house cares about housing prices. We want, it's a, usually it's our most valuable asset. And everybody knows that if uh, interest rates go up, housing prices tend to come down. Now, why is that? It's because you don't buy a house typically by writing a check because you buy a house by taking out a loan and paying for the house that way. And the cheaper the financing is, the higher the price you can charge. Everybody knows this. It works the same way with automobile financing. If you couldn't finance a car and you just had to write a check for it out of pocket, cars would cost a lot less than they do. They probably wouldn't be as good, but they'd be less expensive because you couldn't sell a lot of people a $50,000 car because most Americans don't have anything like that in the bank. Um, so financing stuff is a way to make things typically more expensive. And this absolutely positively has been the case with higher education, that if you put, if you give about, you know, particularly an 18 year old, the ability to borrow $100,000 at essentially zero interest, um, at least while he's in school, and then at a steeply subsidized interest rate uh, for however long it takes to pay it off, um, that money is going to go out the door into his pocket and through him into the university. That's just the way it's going to be. And uh, it's a way of using the students as mules, essentially, to uh, shunt money into the universities rather than just spending money on the universities and accounting for it in your budget like a responsible adult. So I agree with every single thing that you've just said. And of course uh, you do. I would only add to it that I have a really old fashioned view of this. Uh, and, uh, and in some senses, a really simplistic view of this. And that is mm -hmm. that you should do what you say you're going to do. And if you sign yeah. a contract, you should fulfill it. And if you 
say you're going to pay back a loan, you should pay it. And I think that this uh, makes the scenario that you just described, which was your education, which was heavily subsidized, um, unhypocritical in that yeah. you went knowing the rules. And you know, I think stability in public policy, but also obeying your promises uh, are both good things. And so, you know, you looked at this landscape and said, all right, well, this is subsidized. This isn't, this is the loans that I need to take, or I need to work to make sure I don't have loans. And you made your call. People who entered into student loan uh, programs promised to pay the money back. And I mean, if we want to go back to the mortgage interest deduction, I think it applies there too. I oppose that rule. Um, I also understand, although I wouldn't have been too upset if it had gone away, but I I understand why the Republican uh, Congress that wrote the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act, I think it's called, technically, I understand why they grandfathered people in who had uh, mortgages that were taken out before it. Because sure. those people made a decision based on existing federal law. And to take down uh, to zero uh, the, the, the benefit, is a benefit, the benefit would, would have been somewhat uh, disruptive. And I don't just mean politically disruptive, although I guess political parties have to think about that, but I mean economically disruptive um, as well. And then the party thought, well, we can't say that you get up to a million dollars in uh, relief and you get zero, so we'll set it lower than it was and grandfather those people in. But see, I don't think that is hypocrisy. <laughs> I, I think it would no, be totally hypocritical if the, you know, this is never going to happen, but the Republican Party one day said, you know what, you only live once, uh, we're doing a flat tax. All of the deductions and all of the progressive brackets go away. The whole thing goes away and it's a pure flat tax and there's no exceptions whatsoever. And then one day some guy who calls himself a fiscal conservative says, I think we should start subsidizing mortgages. That would be hypocrisy. Um, but to... to uh, to stay faithful to the status quo, even if the status quo is not what you would choose, um, I don't think is. And this is one of the reasons that the the student loan transference just drives me nuts. Because the people who uh, took out those loans, took out those loans, promised to pay them back, spent the money, and benefited from it. Or at least uh, use the services that yeah. the money paid uh, I'm for. I want to see their transcript. I want to see their transcript before I decide whether they actually benefited from it. Well, but, um, sure. I want, to, I want. I want three writing samples and an interview. And so now they say, "Well, I, in the end, it, it wasn't what I thought it would be." Some of them do. Most of them yeah. don't. In the end, yeah. uh, they say, "Well." Uh, but Joe Biden, when he was a senator from Delaware, he voted for a bill that prevents me from discharging student loans in bankruptcy. Okay, maybe that is a bad idea, but that's also the rule. And you knew that going in. In no other circumstance do we do we behave like this. In no other circumstance do we say, I took out $50,000, I borrowed it against my house to improve my house. I wanted a new bathroom and a new bedroom and I wanted to fix the roof. And can you believe it? Five years later, the house isn't worth fifty thousand dollars more. I over improved it. Okay, 
you knew the rules. I'm sorry. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, one last point, and then I'll, I'll, I'll close it out here. But um, a lot of the discussion about this has centered on the question of, well, people take out a lot of loans and then their earnings aren't very high. And so some people say, well, you know, this means students need to think more about that um, or we shouldn't make loans available for certain majors that are um, unlikely to be high paying or we should structure things in such a way as to be more um, apt to subsidize uh, or to loan money to people who are likely to earn more money when they get out. And I think there's maybe some useful conversations to be had there, but this points to something that I think is much more fundamental and more important, which is that we really need to, as a matter of both you know culture and our, our public understanding of things, but also as a matter of policy, really start to distinguish between higher education as education and higher education as job training. These are different things uh, that probably shouldn't be done at the same institutions for the most part. Um, there's no reason to treat them the same way. Um, yes, it's absolutely true that if someone is studying Victorian literature or French poetry or ancient Greek, um, that we should think about their professional prospects and the dollar value of their education in a different way than we do if someone's studying chemistry or computer science or law. Uh, that doesn't mean those things aren't worthwhile. In fact, I think they're enormously worthwhile to such an extent that I think we should probably subsidize those. Uh, a bit more than we do the things that are likely to, uh, you know, pay for themselves anyway in the form of, of higher salaries. But, um, you know, a lot of people have come out of this saying, um, well, my earnings just, you know, kind of weren't what I expect them to be. And then you look at what they were majoring in or what their program is like. And so why, why did you expect that? You know, so, <laughs> who told you that? Kevin, perhaps this word is too rhetorical for you, but yes. it, it, really astonishes me that if that is the case on mass that the federal government is not going after the colleges for fraud or at least if not for fraud that the federal government is not concluding that the issue here is with the colleges that the colleges should hand over some of their endowments, that the colleges should account for themselves, that the colleges should have to perhaps co-sign every loan that is taken out or be on the hook for it. I mean, in what other circumstance would we say, well, people keep buying this product and then complaining that the product didn't do what it promised it was going to do, so we'll just subsidize that at everyone else's expense? Yeah, I think that the university administrations are going to have to be you know, held to some kind of account at some point, because that's where the money really goes. You know, the students are just conduits. Money just passes through them. Um, you know, if the federal government gave people $10 billion and said, but you can only use it to subscribe to National Review, which is a great plan, by the way, um, we wouldn't think that the federal government was giving people money. We would think the federal government's really giving National Review money. Um, and the same thing with student loans, that um, it's a way of spending money on politically important people, which are not students, but university staff, faculty, administrators, people attached to higher education in general, while using the students and their hopes and their ambitions as a kind of, you know, human shield to put that spending behind. 